listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, practical wisdom for everyday life inspired by ancient philosophers of Greece and Rome. I'm your host, Justin Vakula. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com. This is episode 98, Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living in, with Kai Whiting. In his new book, Kai Whiting applies Stoic principles to contemporary issues. He shows that Stoicism is not an ivory tower philosophy or a collection of Silicon Valley life hacks, but a vital way of life that helps us live simply, improve our communities, and find peace in a turbulent world. On with today's episode. All right, welcome back to the podcast, Kai Whiting, author of Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living in. Hi, Justin, it's great to be here. I would say quickly that I'm the co-author, so that Leonidas Consentikov is also um, seen as the author, right? All right, good. Yes, thanks for coming back on the show. We're here to talk about your book today. After previous episodes, you appeared talking about articles. You've expanded on your ideas and now a full-length book, available, of course, on Amazon, Kindle, and other fine retailers. <laughs> so uh, good good to have you here today. It's really, really great to be here. Yes, I think, yeah, we often talk about articles, right? And this is the first time where actually we're talking about something that was really for the general public, you know, literally for them, as opposed to, say, academics that we did try to also include uh, laypersons in that. This is a very sort of different um, way of looking at the world, right? The way way corresponding with people and communicating ideas, because before it was, yes, we can share the academic papers, uh, but this academic paper wasn't necessarily written for you. But this time it's like, yes, it, if, if you're a member of the public, it was written for you and not so much the academics, it's the other way around. So it's quite an interesting um, negotiation practice, I guess, uh, looking at what does this mean for the general person as opposed to how can we contribute to scholarly knowledge, completely different uh, beast, as it were. All right, very good. And if you could give listeners a quick elevator pitch for your book. Well, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a really good question to start off with. So I would say that uh, most contemporary Stoic books focus a lot on the dichotomy from control, so what's in your control and what is not, namely your actions, your attitude, and your thoughts. Uh, for Leo and I, we reflected on the fact that the dichotomy of control, one, is a modern concept developed about 2008, not entirely Hypertitus put it, but quite a good approximation. The important thing about it is that it's like Stoicism 101, it's literally uh, discourses 1.1. So we're like, okay, once you understand that, there's a load of Stoicism that people kind of dismiss sometimes or at least overlook. So we wanted to have a book that was focused on virtues because that's what the ancient Stoics were focused on rather than what's in your control and what's not. And in the Stoic sense of the, of the, the idea of virtue isn't just about oneself, not just about me, myself and I, but how I, because it doesn't exist in a, in a, in a vacuum, but how I can have, say, head, more headspace so that I can be a better person for myself, for my family, for my friends, for my local community, for the wider cosmopolis and the environment. I'm just telling you quickly about the Heracles circles of concern, of course. So it's slightly different in that sense. And, and you touch on this of personal improvement in your book. You say that personal improvement is important, but so is helping others and having a larger impact. Helping others also helps you. Absolutely. I, I would. I often say, and I'll say it here, is, is like if you think stoicism is about you and only you, you've missed the point. Like, yes, we want to create headspace. We, want, we don't want to be focused, on, focused too much on the trivial mundane. 
that you know getting upset because someone I don't know cut us up in traffic or something like that we want to have headspace so that we can instead of being frustrated with that we can work out what is my role um what you know how can I be virtuous in this instant how can I be an asset to my local community how can I be in harmony because so you know the founder talked a lot about harmony how can I be in harmony with the world uh, or with uh, nature as he would say with, with the logos so that's kind of what we did we kind of thought how can we create a self-help book which really uh, is self-help as in helps you help yourself so we say quite early on Leo and I we don't have the answers Justin in your life the best person to provide you answers is you and we found that a lot of self-help was like a formulaic way of thinking like if you follow what I do a, B, and C, you'll get one, two, and three. And the Stoics never saw the world like that because they'll say, well, that depends on, say, where do you live? And uh, are you a male? Are you female? Um, that How old are you, right? Because if you followed my advice as an American, for example, I actually talked about this before. Like, if I followed your excellent uh, money-saving advice that you've talked to me about before, living in Portugal, I can't apply any of it. <laughs> Literally, we discussed it like none. Right, right. So if, I, if you wrote an excellent book, about how to you know uh, save money over a year which i think you'd actually would be an excellent book if i was living in the us it would be a book i'd i'd have <laughs> i would definitely buy it and it would be very helpful to me and in portugal it's it's like literally useless and this is the problem that i well that we found with self-help is that it seems that everybody's almost like the author <laughs> everybody's like me so if everybody does like what i do they'll succeed or get what whatever i got and that's just simply not it's just simply not true um and that's what the stoic said like you know virtue we you and i are both called we both have the moral obligation to do what we can in the given situation to act virtuously but how you act and how i act differs depending on who we are so a quick example is if you're a doctor as a medical doctor and i'm not and you, we come across a person in the street my obligation might be you know my obligation is to save that person's life right but it will be to ring the ambulance ring for a paramedic if you're a medical doctor you can't just say necessarily, oh, I'm just going to call an ambulance. You might have an obligation to do more than that. You know, you might say, I'll put the person on this side, I'll clear their airways. It also would depend exactly where we, where we found the person. So if they're in the hospital car park and you've just come off shift, you might say, oh, I'm very tired. It's better that I don't intervene, but I'll call my colleague in the car park to intervene, right? So self-help books don't generally think you know, or allow one to think in those terms. So we kind of had a big pushback against that, simply because that was the stoic message and one we really believe in. Right. And a theme in your book is that it's important to choose the attitude that we have, even when we can't choose external circumstances. So yes, things are going to be different from person to person, whether it's geography, expertise, capability, but stoicism is still accessible to all in some way. Exactly. Like that's another beautiful thing about the Stoic philosophy that it takes you where you're at. It doesn't really drive you to accept, other than to accept that the only things you can you can have control over are your thoughts, attitudes, and actions. It doesn't drive you towards a set way of this is this is what you looks like, and then gives you specifics like what it would look like in terms of this is what your life would look like. Other than to say you would always. Um, act appropriately right doesn't say exactly what an appropriate act constitutes because that depends on a lot of things that you've just you know, highlighted like again geography like what is appropriate in one situation is not appropriate in another situation because for example um 
I'm acting in that instance as your friend, as opposed to say somebody's son or somebody's father. So like the relationship I have with a person will also dictate how I think, act and my attitude, right? So I'll give you just a quick example. Um, I was recently criticized for writing a piece on council culture. Uh, and somebody said, well, why don't you, you know, why don't you write about the war in Yemen? Isn't that more important? And I was like, I'm not going to deny that it's, it's, you know, it's important. However, I don't speak Arabic. I'm not from Yemen. I'm not from Saudi Arabia. I don't know Mohammed bin Salman very well at all. Uh, it's not my expertise at all. It's not something I studied. Uh, I don't know anything about, say, uh, just war theory, like Leonidas does. And that's his specialist subject. I don't know about that. But I am a university lecturer seeing council culture on the left and the right. I don't see it as a, a left a left wing or a right wing thing. It's both, but both basically both people can cancel, both groups of people can cancel people, but they'd cancel people for different reasons. So I could, you know, I could write about that because I was seeing it in front of me and I had to make a decision like that. Is this something that I, I find odd as a stoic? Because we say that um, council culture is about protecting people from pain. From triggers i'm not talking about post-traumatic stress disorder triggers but uh, social triggers and we're like well as a stoic like pain is indifferent we can use it to we can use it to progress towards a life worth living or we can say you know we can accidentally backslide because we don't actually we so instead of like working with it in a virtuous manner we can actually be quite vicious so i we i wrote a piece with a call for called jonathan church and we said that if, I, if we were Epicurean, it would make a lot of sense, council culture, because we, we would like safe spaces, we would like to maximize our tranquility, because that's, all our virtuous acts would be done in, in function of, of um, rational tranquility. But as Stoics, uh, council culture, for the most part, unless somebody's being, say, inciting violence or something like that, makes not much sense. So there was a lot of pushback, like, well, you could have spoke about something more important. Well, about my role as a university lecturer and researcher, that is a very key uh, challenge that we're facing at the universities, um, particularly in the English, I wouldn't say in every, every language, but in the English speaking world, that's a real big problem. So that was something like, I'm not denying that a war is not important. I'm just not the right person to talk about it. Justin, I don't know if that makes sense. Right. And I think that objection could always exist. Oh, you're recording a podcast right now, but you could be helping homeless people. Oh, you're helping homeless people, but you can be out there doing this or that and donating blood or whatever. I, those objections can come and come and come and come and come but at a certain point yes we have a certain skill set and we have some autonomy over how we use our time so it seems strange for an objection of oh you could focus on this more important thing i like what you said i think that i think you've been i think that is universally applicable i didn't think about that because it just seemed so strange to me that, that someone was uh, you know quite frustrated that i would dedicate you know time for something so uh, frivolous to them and i'm like it's not frivolous when i'm seeing colleagues of mine lose their job mm -hmm. over something they said and I mean, I'm very much into like free speech. I mean, <laughs> if I disagree with you, right, and I believe in free speech, that should be okay. Because I, I find it very odd that people say, oh, I'm not against free speech. I'm just against when it's used that way. I'm like, yeah, but if you only use, if you only want it whilst you're talking, that's the opposite of free speech. Right. So that was something I was wanted to highlight. And we didn't say like in the article that counterculture was good or bad, right? We literally said it was indifferent. And we're like, when we spoke about it, because for me, at least, council culture is a form of exile, right? It's a form of banishing mm -hmm. people from a set space. That's exactly what <laughs> the Stoics dealt with 
on a regular basis, right? Right. <laughs> Rufus was like, ex- Mercedes Rufus, so Epitaxis' teacher, was exiled twice. And people think exile is like you're banished to an island that is not very habitable, right? Actually, it's it's more than that. It's saying you're no longer worthy of being inside the safe city gates. We remove you from the city. And once you were outside the city gates, you're in no no man's land, no person's land, right? You could be attacked, robbed. And basically, it was like, we don't care if you get there or not. If you get there, good for you. If you don't, well, we had to remove you from the city. So it's not about, Exxon wasn't about sending someone off. It was sending someone away and not really minding about the consequences because it wasn't like they had loads of water and they had internet connection and they could have a coffee halfway you know like we think of it now like okay so i have to go somewhere i don't like no imagine you have to go somewhere you don't like you know on foot or if you're really you know fortunate you know with a you know horse or say a camel or something and you've got to go you know to a, for a journey for seven days or 14 days and you don't know if it's water and it's summer and you don't know if you're going to get robbed. That, that, that's what XL was. And it's like in the sort of social media sense, that's what council culture could be like. It's like we don't care. It's not just about removing them from from talking. It's also we don't care if you lose your job. Right, right. <laughs> but we don't care if you lose your income. Yeah. Um, because you're a you know, person non grata. We don't, we don't like you anymore. And it's like, well, even if you do that, I'm not saying there's no instances where that should be done, but even if you do that, doesn't necessarily mean that the idea goes away. <laughs> you just remove the person. Whereas in this, you know, Stokes would say, well, what's reasonable? Is, is, it, is it that kinds of culture is a, a last resort thing, like we've tried everything else, and the only thing that, that we can do is remove that person because we've tried to reason with them, like in a debate? That is both sides, not just my in-group versus my out-group, because that's what Sturzum says. Like, if we're cosmopolitan, we're not we're not tribes, right? It doesn't mean that everybody is like we should see everybody exactly the same, because obviously I can't treat you the same way I treat my you know my sister, for example. But it is to acknowledge that we all form part of we're all world citizens, and that my tribe is no if I have a tribe is no more important than yours, and it should be something that you can come in and out of, and based on reason, right? Based on reasonable debate. And that's not what I'm seeing at universities of, of all places. Right, I'm right. like, if you can't have a debate at university, where can you have one? Yes. So that's what kind of how we... Yeah, un- unfortunately, there's been a modern trend of people protesting events, pulling fire alarms, blocking people from entering them. And, and that's certainly not a world that, that we want, where it's essentially mob rule at that point. Well, the, the loud people who are going to be able to disrupt the events, they have the power. And whoever could be louder, then they win, rather than hearing a speaker or having an event. Absolutely. It's not, yeah, it's not who's reasonable, it's who's loudest, who can, who can disrupt. And that's, to me, as anti-stoke, it makes no sense because it's only when it's in listening to somebody that makes you feel uncomfortable and challenging their ideas that you can, you wrestle for virtue, right? You wrestle for justice. Like just removing somebody from talking doesn't necessarily do that. I mean, if it's literally, I, I'm not saying we should never do it. I think it's a last resort. I'm like, we've tried, we've reasoned with you and you just won't reason. But this isn't, you know, this isn't reason. I mean, and I also find that um, women tend to be on, tend to face a lot of council culture more often than men. What men have to do to be counseled is so much higher. And then that talks to me about, you know, the power, you know, talking about who, who has the power really. Like, is an academic person without very much platform at all who's, who's concerned about, say, um, ju- you know, fairness in, in sport? Are they not able to even voice that concern? <laughs> in the UK, they haven't been. And uh, we've had to, well, the UK has brought out a law 
where you, if you are cancelled, you can actually fight your corner now. You, you can actually say, I was cancelled, and then you, it open, you can open up a court case. So because if you, and show evidence like, okay, what, for what reason was I cancelled? And was that the only thing that could be done? Was I literally just giving a discussion about my concern about, you know, justice in sport? Yes. And I was cancelled because... And so I think it's sad that that law is necessary, but I personally am very in favour of that law if that's the only way that universities will actually stand up and listen. And actually a lot of, um, we have found recently that uh, women who are questioning certain uh, contemporary norms are being you know, treated unjustly, right? It may not be very popular what they're saying, but it doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to say it and they certainly shouldn't be threatened with their job for even having their quote-unquote audacity to ask a question. Right, Justin? Right. And you talk about it in your book that it's important to focus on being better rather than feeling better, uh, as, as many people will just take this uh, reaction to things like, I'm offended or I'm uncomfortable with this, so therefore speech should be shut down or this conversation just shouldn't happen. I mean, correct. There's a lot of virtue signaling as opposed to <laughs> as opposed to virtue or virtuous acts, right? Like... It, if like shutting someone down and then screaming about it on Twitter is virtue, that's not a stoic understanding of the word virtue. It's like, well, what did you, you know, how did you flourish in that instance, right? Because basically you're saying this person is too dangerous for me to listen to. And then you're giving, in stoicism, literally you're giving them, you're giving up your agency because you're saying that you couldn't possibly tolerate a person being there regardless of what they have to say, right? And therefore, you're saying that your flourishing is dependent on the removal of somebody else. And that's a very interesting predicament, right? And again, if you had, for example, let's say you had a very traumatic experience. Let's say something like you were attacked you know, sexually in a park and this individual that you want to be cancelled is saying things like, I don't know, well, it's about what women wear, right? I mean, we've all unfortunately heard that, right? I'm not saying that you should go, right? It's not about removing, you know, you can remove yourself. Like, I'm not saying, well, you should face that, right? Courage is also knowing, like, what courage is. Like, it's not courageous to sit there and take it or embrace a suck necessarily, right? If that's going to cause you to, you know, to act in a way that's not very virtuous because you're you're not able to to manage that. So I don't have an issue with somebody removing themselves. I don't think that you should be forced forced to listen to the person speak, but to um, d- deny completely access to university, I think, is a terrible situation because it's about, you know, having the, it's not just the students, the academics, say, like myself, saying, well, actually, you say that is about what women wear, right? What do you mean by that? Why do you say that? Because otherwise, that person will still believe that. If, I, if we cancel that person, they're not, that belief is not going to go away. I would then question them, like, okay, why, you know, why do you think that? But what, based on what, what is that based on? Why should what you wear change anything? How would you feel if I said, well, it's how you have your haircut, right? <laughs> well, of course you are, you know, of course you're not employed in the way you want to. You look at your haircut. It has nothing to do with the fact you have a PhD and you're very skilled and, right? You'd find that just as offensive because to you, your identity as a professor is probably really, really important, right? And put it in terms that they would understand. And you can only do, you can only do that by, by listening to what the person has to say finding the common ground, find where you, finding where you, there is not an agreement in the common ground, and arguing the point of reason. And even if that individual doesn't, because I, when I've argued people that have said things like that with people, uh, it, I don't argue necessarily against them, right? 
that they might be a lost cause. But people have come up to me subsequently in the audience and gone, thank you very much for saying that. Uh, the particular argument I remember was when they said, uh, uh, women should be paid to not have children, right? Literally, I was, in a, I was in a talk where they said, women should be paid not to have children. And I said, men have children too. And he said, don't say such a stupid thing. This is a professor. So was, I said, with all due respect, it's biology. And he didn't like that very much. But a lot of women in the audience came up to me after that event and said, thank you very much for pushing back. Because I didn't, I, yeah, we didn't feel that we could. And I, and I was like, okay, this is the power of having debate. And he didn't like it. He really threw his toys at the fan. I've obviously shortened the, the argument that I had. But I stood up and argued in front of 300 people. Because I was so, like, this needs to be said. And a lot of people were, were nodding, right? So if I, we just cancelled him, he'd still believe those things. And maybe he won't publicly admit, yeah, I was wrong to say that because men have to do a very simple fact, right? <laughs> they really do. And actually in the developing world, um, it's men who often d determine how many children a, a woman has, right? So by pointing that out in the simplest of terms and people trying not to laugh because this, this gentleman was, you know, had the position he had, he probably has to at least change the way he approaches that debate. Right. And if he chooses not to because he honestly believes that only women have children, well, there's nothing I can do against his ignorance, ignorance right? <laughs> but just to counter him, wouldn't it just wouldn't have, I don't think it would have worked. And it was uh, really helpful because 300 people in that room could see that, the, for me, the nonsense for what it was. It's a very simple argument that I had. I don't think it was, I don't think it was literally like anything complicated. Right. And you talk on being a better person in your book that you won't always get the result you want, but you can aim for it. You, you give an example of an archer aiming at a target. Yeah. I mean, I would have liked to, I guess the aim was to get him to change. He, 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 he probably won't. Right? <laughs> so I had two aims. One would be that at least he would think about things. And the other one was that particularly the women in the audience didn't feel attacked. So I did feel the way the tone that his tone and the way he was talking was actually quite, um, frustrating for women right because it it was just like oh we just pay them to not have kids like you think it really works like this <laughs> so yeah i i think one of my i don't know i don't think he changed his viewpoint i really don't think that but i know that the people in the audience were like i never thought of it like that i just accepted what whatever a professor would say i would never challenge them the way that you did and they learned i mean some of the uh our friends still from that particular conference because of what i said <laughs> And they like that changed the way that I argue now. I'm not frightened to argue with someone who has a professor in their, you know, in their title because I argue against their ideas, right? And that was really powerful that people saw that. And so I, I didn't. That was not my intention. That was a good thing that happened, right? So I think you're absolutely right. Like we have to have the eye on the target, and the fact that I let go of my arrow and I do the best I can. If the wind comes along and it blows off course, well, I'll just get the next arrow and shoot, you know, for the target again. And that's what stoicism calls us to do. It's not the kind of, oh, it's out of my control, therefore I can't do anything. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, we're just not giving up on everything, right? We're, we're going to try to make some self-improvement, even impact the world, others. And sometimes that change is a gradual thing. Or sometimes you don't even know if the change should happen, but people can be discouraged because their goals their expectations are so high and they, they miss that mark. Absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. I mean, would you say, can you give an example of your own life in your own life where you've continued shooting at the same target and eventually maybe, you know, three or four arrows later you've hit it? 
Oh, sure. I think an easy example is just exercising, that you can maybe have a plan to go to a gym, stay there for a certain amount of hours or however long, and maybe your your day gets really busy, certain things come up, and, oh, okay, well, I can't find the time to go today, but I can go tomorrow and keep at it and just have the overall goal of fitness, even if I'm not at the gym every single day. And I think it's actually a really good example of, like, um, when I talk to people about, like, what's in your control, like, I don't remember if you remember, but I do remember a time where I couldn't do a single pull-up. <laughs> and, like, a lot of people say, okay, I want to do 10 pull-ups. I mean, you've got to get your chin to that bar, like, 10 times, right? And when we think about that, we don't think of that being outside of our control. But in the beginning, it really is, right? The only way to get our chin to the bar 10 times so people say to me, oh, something's beyond my control. I can't do anything. Like, oh, it's the world. It's not just me and so on and so forth, right? I'm like, yeah, what step could you take? If you wanted to change the world in that particular way, what step could you take today, right? So the fact that I was able to write a book and uh, I hopefully change at least some people's view of stoicism, which people have told me that that's happened. Actually, I just gave a talk to Los Angeles Stoics and it's the first time they had so many women there. Because I think because in the book we mentioned uh, female stoics, so I was not able like when we first talked to Justin to write a book, right? I didn't have the ability in me, right? Because I had to learn how to write articles, I had to learn how to speak to the audience, I had to prove I had something that that people other people thought was worthy of being said. But I, and I never had you know three years ago in my mind let's write a book, but. I had it in my mind, let's get some ideas across, right? Let's add a circle of concern called the environment and see what people say. So in, in you know, I couldn't wake up and like write a book and publish it tomorrow, but I could put myself in a, you know, in a position where I was at least engaging with people. So it was like, I'd come to your podcast, we talk about say um, vegetarianism and veganism and, and diet. And people still talk to me about that. They say that because we spoke quite strongly about if I said I, you know, I enjoy meat, so I'm not giving up, people don't seem to find that as a problem. But if I said, well, I enjoy having certain relationships with my animals, people would find that because I enjoy it, right? People would find that disturbing. So we were, people say that to me that that's one of the best arguments I've ever heard about why it is, you know, that just taste alone is not, is not you know, a good reason for maintaining a meat heavy diet and people said I've used that argument actually and I'm like well that's really good like you know, when I spoke to you my intentions were to try to you know to have a conversation with you and get a point across and say I, if somebody says to me that the taste is the reason why they're 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 a meat eater, meat eater but would be appalled at you know if I had certain relationships with the animals then they're not being very coherent right and these people said well that was just really really helpful way of putting it and so that, that's another thing, like, you know, taking one step at a time and what can I say today that might be helpful in my role as a, as a you know, lecturer and researcher and in your role, what can you say today as a podcaster that might help people understand stoicism in a better way? Is that, is that how you see your podcasting? Yeah, there, there can be all sorts of reasons that people do things, whether it's for hobby or whether it's to generate income, to educate others, giving back to the community. Right. So usually, yeah, there's not just one one reason for things. It's it's a more complicated world. So as long as someone is seeing some kind of benefit, they usually continue doing what they're doing. So for for me, this whole this started because I found some inspiration from stoicism and I wanted to share it with others. 
And why would you say it continues just out of interest? Just uh, talk, talking about current events, I've had you on, we've had a lot of discussions and I found those valuable. So sharing those conversations with others has been something to continue doing. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm just I'm just thinking, because sometimes we, again, this is a, uh, my critique towards the conventional self-help, is like normally people get a lot of um, impetus, you know, they want to start something and they get really excited. And then, you know, because they don't hit the bullseye like they thought they would, or, or as quickly as they would, they, they lose... Um, they, they lose, um, you know, they lose their, their mind over it because they say, oh, you know, I plan to I don't know, get rich quick within like, you know, six months, a typical self-help book. And that's not happened because, again, they are looking at how did the author become wealthy and they're assuming they have the same skill set and they're assuming that they can do exactly the same thing as them and get the same results. And it's just not, it's just not simply true because even even if they were identical people, like literally they were identical twins, right? They still might not have the same network. They still not have the same exact personality. One might be more charismatic than the other. So I think that that's really keys that with this help help book was how can you establish the principles? Like I don't want to give you like how to do every step because I don't know you. Like you know yourself, like uh, the Oracle, we speak about her really in two um, chapters, but really early on we say she says know thyself like know who you are because if you can't if you don't know who you are you're going to be lost um very quickly and i would say for example you have a podcast because you are very good at um packaging ideas in a concise manner um you have a very clear voice you you like audio you like you know communicating with different people you you are i was actually quite introverted but you have this extroverted uh, part of you as well so that's why I would say you probably do a podcast as opposed to, say, writing blogs, right? Um, that's also quite quite important because people have, even yesterday, like, why don't you do a podcast? I'm not an audio person. <laughs> I like talking to people, but I couldn't do all the editing that you do, Justin, and I wouldn't be good at knowing which mic I had to use. And I could do that, but I'm actually better at writing blog pieces, right? So it's also to be able to say, like, you know, self-help books talk about, like, doing a lot more often. Like, you should do more. And Stoism's like, you should do what's appropriate. <laughs> so that might be doing less. Actually. Right, thanks. And sometimes if you try to do too much, then that, that doesn't seem to work either. You're just spreading yourself too thin rather than focusing. So there's all kinds of balance. And yes, it depends on the individual, what kind of time they have, what kind of skills they have. So it's important to do that self-evaluation rather than just going on this, as you were talking about, model that someone else puts out. And in fact, in your book, you talk about that, that we should care more about what we think about ourselves rather than the judgment of others. And others can often have mistaken judgments or priorities. I, I think that's absolutely right. Because also like, um, well, you know me a little bit on a personal level as well, but obviously the public public persona, as it were, that I have is different to who I am, you know, in my quiet time, right? And that's for, I would say that's the case for everybody to different degrees. I mean, it doesn't mean <laughs> I'm a different person, but obviously when I'm in teacher mode, I'm in teacher mode because I have to think in a different way and and I have to express myself and I have to speak in a certain you know tone. Whereas if I'm in my day to day, like walking around literally in my house, I, I don't have to do that. So people often say like they look at the persona that you have to because you do have to project. Everybody does. Right. You just have to. <laughs> you can't be the same person you are in your pajamas <laughs> on a Monday morning by the time you get to your office, you know, early morning, by the time you get there, say, at nine o'clock, by the time you turn on your, your Zoom call at nine o'clock, you have to be, you know, publicly presentable. 
And so people often say, oh, you should do this because they're basing it on, you know, what you do in your job. Oh, you're really talkative, so you would do a podcast. But after I finish my job, I have nothing else to say. <laughs> I like down, I like to write, right, because I like to process what I may, might have said during the day. And if I was on the, you know, on a podcast and I was presenting a podcast, um, I'd feel like I was like emptying the water in my bucket to the point that I had no more water in it. So there's also like acknowledging that, yes, it would be a good idea and I understand exactly why you think I should run a podcast, but actually my skill set's better suited and my preference is better suited to writing blog pieces. Because in the book we talk about like when you decide to drink milk, uh, cow's milk in a tea, and, or a coffee, depending, I guess, which country you're from. But um, one of the key things is, like, do you want to drink milk? <laughs> do you want to do that? Is that something you want to do? And not just in general. Do you want to do it now? So we give the example of, I, as you know, Justin, I typically don't drink uh, milk in, I don't drink milk at all in tea. But if someone pours it and it has been uh, done, uh, I, I have to make a choice, right? Do I want to drink, you know, tea with milk or don't I? And Stoics don't have any absolutes other than you must be virtuous, right? You're called to walk to journey towards eudaimonia, uh, the flourishing life. And so I asked myself during that moment, where am I? Like, am I in my own, my own house? If I'm in my own house, Justin, I feel much more comfortable about saying, well, thank you for that tea and perhaps pouring it away. Or saying, would you drink it instead? But if I'm in, let's say, a person, you know, let's say I'm in a, an elderly aunt's house and she'd be offended by the fact that I'm pouring that tea down the drain right let's say that she grew up in a, in a situation where you know, food was and tea was say scarce well it's no good me saying well she shouldn't be offended right it still doesn't cause you not to be offended not like no but nobody else should be offended right so it's not like oh well she shouldn't be offended and i've heard that before like well that's not really what stoicism calls you to do right <laughs> doesn't tell you to tell her not to be it's offended. not the whole story anyway it, yeah it's not the whole story and then you say okay do i have to pour it away is oh no uh, can I drink it? Like, is it healthy for me to drink or am I allergic to say my lactose intolerant, in which case it'd be really uncomfortable for me for the rest of the day? Uh, and do I want to drink it? Is this the second tea that I've drank today that someone else already poured, you know, that tea with milk? Have I told my aunt on more than one occasion as nicely as I can and do I have to now draw a line? Or is it the first time she's ever done it for me and, you know, drinking half the tea is actually not going to, you know, cause me any harm and, it's me being kind and considerate and I can actually make it clear, oh, you know what, aunt, you know what, I'll do the teas from now on. Oh, that would be lovely, dear. I'd love you to do the teas. That would be really helpful. It's quite hard for me to carry the teas these days. <laughs> so you just look for an opportunity perhaps to never have to drink tea like in that that in that way again in her house. And she might say, oh, I'm so glad that you've offered me to make the tea. So you, you're kind of looking at how can I be pro-social? How can I be, you know, thinking about her as a part of my circle and how can i be like solution based right because i've sort of ticked two boxes that i can make tea so she doesn't have to she's she feels that's great and now i can make the tea how i want she won't she won't know what's in my tea she'll just assume there's milk and i don't necessarily have to correct that right so you talk about some areas of your life where you've applied stoicism you also mentioned some role models or some people in your book including a race car driver who was able to thrive after calamity. Alex Nadi had a terrible, ter there's no word for it, I don't think, Justin, a terrible accident. He was driving around a corner on a racetrack in the Indy, uh, IndyCar series, and 
he's he slid on a curb and his car actually ended up in a weird angle and as he went around that corner and he, and a other another participant went straight into him again at a weird angle for Alex Nardi and literally severed both his legs because of the speed at which they were going i mean it, I, I mean you can see that accident on youtube uh, it's 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 very unusual and incredible that that man he didn't walk away obviously he did not walk away from that but the fact that he survived was was incredible because even nasa used him as an example of how much blood you can lose and still live the interesting story is that he 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 felt the need to get back in that car right not in the beginning because they said oh will you ever race he's like right now i can't even go to the toilet by myself <laughs> yep. my goal today is to go to the toilet by myself which goes to he was not in, he didn't know if he'd ever race again but he knew that if he was going to race again if he were going to race again he would need to go to the toilet by himself because he couldn't even do that he wouldn't be able to race right so again it was outside of his control but he felt that and he was right that what was in his control was being able to go to the toilet by himself when he could do that it was like how can i you know go outside my of my house because if i can't go outside my house how can i drive and then it was okay i don't have any legs how can i adapt a car so i can drive and so on and so forth and i thought it was just incredible i mean he never called himself a stoic but it was incredible for me an incredibly stoic act in the sense of saying okay i need to be courageous but i need to be wise right i need to know what's the appropriate act i need to know what the appropriate attitude is because when they asked him like are you scared you're going to have another accident he said well i can't lose my legs again can i <laughs> I, I that that was his answer it was it was incredible incredible that he would say literally well i can't i can't lose my legs again and it's true that, that accident could not happen to him again it literally physically could not happen in that way because there was no way that that could happen so he focused on that and he pushed himself to to because he said this is this is what helps me flourish if i don't have racing and i don't at least try to become a racer again i don't have anything so he asked himself like am i a racer because i can drive because now i've gotten two legs and i haven't got any legs i can't actually drive right now or am i a racer because i'm a racing driver in my mind and i thought that was just a very powerful story and it, i think it talks to everybody that has faced physical and um mentally emotional or, or disability um based challenges right we don't talk a lot about disability in self-help books and i think that's such a shame because i think that if you are um physically or cognitively disabled you have so much to add and so much value and most self-help books just they don't talk to you right they don't talk to you at a level that you can even apply for example uh you know if you're in a if you're wheelchair bound can you can you do what the author says for you to do and the answer in most cases i would say is no because not simply that you can't use your legs is that no you know very few people would see you as a leader right i've been in a wheelchair for a couple of days when i had my foot infected and the amount of people who would ask the person who was pushing my chair okay they wouldn't even ask me anymore justin they literally didn't ask me if i was okay they just assumed that i had no uh, cognitive abilities at all 
and I was being pushed around, it was in Poland, and this lady was giving out flyers for a nightclub, so I was much younger. And I was like, why aren't you giving me a flyer? And she said, um, she looks at the chair, she looked at, she looked at me, she looked at the chair, she looked at me and went, oh. And so the door, you know, literally the door of that nightclub was closed to somebody who was in a wheelchair. And I, and I, and I can see that, that, you know, a lot of business opportunities will be closed to a person in a wheelchair because of something like that. So it, it seems particularly un, you know, irrational for me to say, okay, well, all self-help books can help you if they give you a formulaic um, method for achieving things rather than saying, you know your life, you know what you need to, to achieve that goal better than I can. And that's why we make the argument that it really is not stoic to put yourself in somebody else, you know, to say, oh, put yourself in my shoes. Stoics say you can't do that. Because even if you did that, you're putting your views about how somebody else's life is into the mix. So it has nothing to do with their actual life. So Stoics say like we should aim for sympathy or harmony. Basically asking a person, what is it like to be in your shoes? Tell me about that. And not making a judgment, you know, not taking the impression, but not judging them for it and go, what does that mean? So when we talk about, say, in an orchestra sense, I don't just want to be the best, say, trumpet player I can be. I want to be the best trumpet player so that the other people in the orchestra sound good, which is a very uh, key difference, and which I think sums up being better really well. Um, but I would like to see personally that we have self-help books that help people regardless of their circumstance, right, to help themselves. Yes, and it's a strength of stoicism. It's not like, oh, you need to be born of a certain lineage or you need to have a certain amount of wealth in order to have access to ideas or to have some sort of impact on the world saying, hey, everyone can have some kind of impact and influence and contribute to the greater society, the greater good. Absolutely. I mean, that's a really uh, concise way of putting it. And you, you also mentioned that, that no one is an island. This is one of the chapters in your book that one's success is often or almost always partially due to the help from others. Yes, uh, we, we felt that um, it's actually particularly a U.S. phenomenon uh, where people claim that they deserve all of their, say, salary and share options because they're, they're intelligent, because they're innovative, because they're, um, you know, on some level supporting humanity, humanity and driving them forward. Um, and of course, like, to a certain extent, they may well be intelligent, right? Um, and they may have academic credentials, and they may have access to resources. This, the Stoic will ask, okay, well, how did you get access to resources? How did you get the money that you have now? So your salary and your share options, so your, what, what, what is that based on? Okay, Wall Street. So your, a lot of your wealth is based on Wall Street, um, Wall Street patterns. Okay, are you responsible for constructing Wall Street? No. Did you did you involve anybody else in buying shares or did you buy all the shares yourself? Oh no, so you also depend on people buying those shares. Okay, do you, do you depend on your customer? Yes, you depend on the customer. Okay, uh, did you make every product in the factory? Did you design the factory? Did you build the roads to go to your factory? Did you educate every single one of your employees to read and to write 
and so on and so forth. And then when you start to do those questions, I mean, you're laughing because it's true, right? The answer is they're not really responsible for very much. <laughs> so again, like Stokes don't say that you can, that, you know, we should be communist. I mean, that's a very 20th century idea, right? It just says that you should acknowledge what you're responsible for, namely your thoughts, your actions and your attitude. And so it's really funny that we say that. And yet a lot of uh, people who would call themselves Stoic, or at least say they were influenced by Stoicism, would defend the self-made man myth, right? And I say man, it could be a woman as well, but typically a man. Hey, wait a minute, you just told me you're only responsible for your attitude, actions and thoughts. Like, yes. So if you're only responsible for that, why would a entrepreneur deserve 1,500 times the average you know, or the lowest waged person in the company? Oh, that's completely different. How? <laughs> They're only responsible for those three things, as are you. So we basically go from, uh, in the contemporary sense, like go from everything's my fault, like all the good stuff's also my fault, or nothing is, depending on do I want to tackle it or do I, do I not? Do I, want, do I want to enjoy the fruits of my labor, quote unquote, or do I want to say it's beyond my control? And then when it's beyond my control, I can do nothing. And when it's talking about how much my CEO, I'm responsible for everything. So it just made me smile. I mean, there's a lot of Silicon Valley Stoics out there that on one hand are telling you, yes, it's, you know, this is beyond my control. But yet when it goes to how much money they make, they will defend it and say, well, I, you know, I deserve it because I work hard because like, yes. But if that wealth is accumulated on the backs of other people, what does that mean? Because you have, you can't have your cake and eat it, right? You can't say on one hand that you understand that. To, to use the modern, the modern uh, concept, the dichotomy of control, and yet claim that everything in your company is because of you, <laughs> or that the great majority of them, they need a great leader. Can you see that the irony there? Right, right. And it's a good case for humility, too, that, hey, it's okay to reach out for help. It's a good thing to learn from others. And in the age we're living in now, the amount of resources and information just on the internet is just tremendous. If you want to be good at something you want to learn a new skill there's so so much information out there not all of it's going to be good information of course but you can sift through and certainly get better and learn something the case the case for boredom becomes ever worse as the days go on <laughs> you're, yeah you are right actually it's, it's, it's i think if you are bored just because i always thought that actually before internet like if you were bored because you actually wanted to be like because you lacked the imagination to think like okay what can i do right now again what can i do right now to change something and again like stoicism um it doesn't mean that we're altruistic right i've had this i was discussing this actually this morning that altruism and selfishness do not exist as concepts in stoicism altruism being doing the right thing sort of doing what's good and selfishness doing the wrong thing for yourself right in stoicism is literally is it an appropriate act if it's an appropriate act it's not altruistic <laughs> it's just an appropriate act so for example if you and i were supposed to record today and then something happened to your friend like a let's say a, a tragedy you might then call me and say i really can't do it i need to you know i need to be with that person and no one would call you selfish then because the appropriate thing for you to do would be to help your friend right but on the same side, like you might actually call me and say, I have like, I had a really bad day. The interview is going to, you know, it's going to be terrible because I'm just really frustrated. And I know that I'm not going to act very virtuously if we do this podcast. And some people would say, oh, how selfish of you, Justin, right? <laughs> But right, how selfish that you, you did that to me. But in terms of, was that the appropriate thing to do based on right now, how you know that this conversation is going to go? If the answer is yes, it was an appropriate act, right? We're not consequentialists. Right. 
another example would be if you know if you get if you're drunk and you drive and you fall into a ditch right you might laugh about it the next day right oh my gosh i drove my car into a ditch i was so drunk and people wouldn't see that as a bad thing right but if you if a person happened to be crossing at that just before the ditch right and you hit them and killed them then you would be in prison right and you'd regret that for the rest of your life the stoics will say actually that's that part is luck Right, regardless if you fall into the ditch or, or you roll into a ditch or you hit on that part is luck that wasn't down to you right if you go in that sense like everything that was down to you as in getting into the car and choosing to drink the amount you drank and going at the speed you chose to go that was down to you and you failed you failed miserably so we often in the contemporary sense look at consequences and Stoics say no it's not about the consequences was it appropriate regardless of the consequence given the information you had at the time of course you need to factor in the consequences because the reason why I don't drink and drive is because I know that if someone happened to cross the street at the time when I'm drunk at the speed that I'll go if I'm drunk they'll die so it's not that we don't factor in them it's just that when it comes to ethics what is ethical we the question is always was it appropriate? So was it appropriate that we didn't say, let's say we did the conversation tomorrow and not today? Yes, then it wasn't selfish, right? So that's the other thing I find really interesting with the um, certain CEOs. I say, well, I do, I do a lot of you know, altruistic things. But in Stoicism, it's like, was it appropriate for you to do, given your role, given the money you had, given your influence, given your, the impact you could have? Was it appropriate? Yes. So again, it's like trying to sort of uh, dial back from the contemporary words, or for example, when we talk about, say, capitalism or communism, we see things in these kind of ways, or altruism versus being uh, selfish versus the ego. Doesn't so. strip that right back and go, is it appropriate? That's why when you talk about the courage, you know, justice, temperance, and wisdom as four virtues, and it doesn't really, it's just virtue, right? It's just that's the way that we can sort of cash it out. That's how we can understand it, because we always want to have justice and not injustice. But yeah, is it appropriate? And I think if we asked ourselves that question uh, on a regular basis, like as much as we could, depending on what we're facing, we would shy away from using the dichotomy of control because the dichotomy of control only makes sense if it's grounded and rooted in virtue. Good. And finally, you talk about death adding urgency to life. It should encourage us to act in ways to make life fulfilling. Yes, it was. it was strange because... It was actually very moving when I, um, I wrote that chapter with with Leo. We found out that how our book agent John had had a heart attack and died. So, although I would never have wanted that to happen to for that chapter to be written, it was very raw, and I think the chapter works precisely because it was literally a reality we had to sit and face whilst writing it. That that. I mean, we'd jokes and said, well, what, you know, John, what happens if you die as our agent? What happens then? He's like, oh, I'm not going to die anytime soon, so don't worry about it. And he died within six months of us joking about that conversation. And it was like, oh, my gosh, this is really urgent. This man is never going to see this book. This man that believed in us, gave us an opportunity. He'll never see it. There's no more memories that we can form with him. So in the beginning, I talk about, like, uh, specifically – my um, grandmother dying and at the end we talk about Zeno dying and I thought it was just starting with death and ending with death it gives us a sense of purpose and urgency because I, I imagine that if you and I Justin could live another 400 years 
uh, you know, and we were fertile for another 300 of them. We're probably thought of having kids, right? <laughs> or if, if, anyone's, if anyone's willing to pay me not to have kids, I'll gladly take the money at this point. <laughs> for those that have listened this far. <laughs> Unfortunately, you're a man. There's no one paying <laughs> They'll not pay you for that. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, like the sense of urgency of, of what can I do right now? I mean, I still think that certain people may well use, you know, if they had 400 years, they might, they might say, look, it, that, that doesn't, that doesn't drive me any differently. But I, I suspect, and I include myself in, in this, that if I could, you know, increase my life, not just so that I was say elderly for 300 years, but I could increase my sort of youth for another 200 years, I don't think necessarily I would be thinking so urgently. And I think that that's the beauty of, of, of death, actually. It's not an evil. Everyone, every one of us will face it at some point. And it's how we face it. It's how we look at it every day. And I'm not one of those people who reflect on death every day. And as a state practice to do that, I don't actually personally find that very helpful. But to know, for example, that uh, my body is not my own in the sense that it belongs to the cosmopolis, right? Very stoic concept. And that your body is not your own and it belongs to the cosmopolis. It does kind of understand, it makes me understand like, okay, so if my body is not my own and belongs to the cosmopolis, what can I do with this body? Whilst, whilst I'm well enough to use it. And, you know, when I die, will I have achieved eudaimonia? I don't, we never know, I don't think, until, you know, the moment where we shut our eyes the last time. Can I say that, that I did everything I could to flourish? Again, as, as Stoics, we're not ones to call ourselves sages, right? That's sort of anti-Stoicism. But will enough people say, he died trying to be a sage, <laughs> or will they say that he's a completely useless individual who is very, very selfish? Uh, for one of the, you know, for a non-general, to use a non-general non non-stroke term. And I, I like to think that even though we've had some pushback against this, because say, you know, a lot of people say, "Well, the dichotomy of control." <laughs> like, yeah, you're not really getting stories. I mean, you just read discourses 1.1. I'm hoping that people are encouraged to help in their community to see self-help in a different way, to take the agency available to them and to work on themselves. And that, I think, is, is what being better does. It doesn't give you answers because we can't give answers, but we certainly give principles and frame, framings and questions for a person to you know, be better in their own lives. All right. Very good. And you are Kai Whiting co-author of Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living In. Find it on Kindle, Amazon, and many other retailers. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. The only last call that I would have, uh, if I'm allowed one, am I allowed one? Oh, yeah, go, go on. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, my, only, my last call is the following. Like, I don't necessarily want you to go out and buy the book, but I'd really appreciate it if you asked your local library for a copy, because some people lost their jobs in the pandemic. And I would hate them. I would hate to think that they had to make a choice between more, you know, more day-to-day -day things and buying the book. So if you could just go out and ask your local university or your local library to store a copy of the book, that way more people have access to it. All right, great. And how can people find you online on the internet? Uh, very good question. So at Kai Whiting, Kai K A I Whiting W H I T I N G. And then my website, stoicguy.com. And for Leonidas, if you send stuff to me, I will forward it to him. So you'll speak to both of us. All right. Thank you very much for coming on today.
Thank you, Justin. I look forward to coming on again soon. All right. Probably uh, the guest who's been on the podcast the most. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks again. I, I will because I enjoy it so much. <laughs> All right. And maybe we'll uh, meet, meet again in the real world sometime in coming months. Certainly hope so. Definitely. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more content. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com for past episodes and social media links. Support my efforts through Patreon or Subscribestar, linked on my website, to receive special perks, including having upcoming guests answer your questions, custom-made podcast episodes, and private one-on-one calls to discuss whatever you'd like. Visit my other podcast at hurdygurdytravel.com, that's H-U-R-D-Y-G-U-R-D-Y travel.com, to learn how to make money, save money, and travel the world at next to no cost with credit card rewards, deals, and loyalty programs. Thanks to generous patrons and fans of this podcast who help support my work. Have a great day.